And now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm pleased to introduce today's guest speaker. He's here with the results of our city's annual physical, if you will. Each year, the much-anticipated Vital Signs Report provides a snapshot of our city's well-being. Rahul Bardwaj, President and CEO of the Toronto Community Foundation, is what you might call the organization's alchemist. He blends philanthropy with community needs to produce results that foster civic engagement and enhance communities. Vital Signs points out progress achieved, areas for improvement, and issues that need attention. More than one million people in Toronto and the greater Toronto area will receive this innovative document. Many use it as a guide, a reference, and, and a resource to plan programs, fund initiatives, and generate solutions for community concerns. A sure sign of the report's success is the fact that more than 35 communities across Canada and eight communities internationally now produce reports modeled after vital signs. As head of the Toronto Community Foundation, Mr. Bardwaj makes it his business to engage philanthropy to improve the city's quality of life. A lawyer by vocation, the city builder has been involved in a number of economic, cultural, and sport development initiatives. Among them, he was a board member of Metrolinks and a vice president of the Toronto 2008 Olympic bid. He is currently co-chair of TO 2015 Ignite, a program of the Toronto 2015 Pan and Para Pan Am Games. He is also the newly appointed chair of the Community Foundations of Canada Board of Directors. With the publication of the 2013 edition of Vital Signs, Mr. Bardwaj will do the necessary round of media interviews, but today he starts here with you. Mr. Bardwaj, the Canadian Club of Toronto's podium, Canada's podium of record, is yours. Thank you for the kind introduction and the photo. It's nice to see everyone here today. This is the 12th year the Toronto Community Foundation has issued our annual report card on the quality of life in our city. And since 2001, Vital Science has grown in scope, rigor, and influence. And today, Vital Science separates fact from myth and confirms the oldest management rule of them all. Only by measuring something do you truly begin to improve it. But vital signs, it also spots the big, often distant challenges early on, and it points to ways of solving them. Now, one take-home from this year's report is Toronto is actually getting some of the big things quite right. We have some impressive assets. People not only want to live here, they want to come here. That's why, this year, Toronto edged past Chicago to become the fourth largest city in North America, right behind Mexico City, New York, and Los Angeles. And I mean, The Economist magazine ranks Toronto fourth on the planet in livability. And when you're doing that, you must be getting some big things right. The other good news is that our strengths strengthen us far more than our weaknesses actually weaken us at least until now. Because the bigger reality is we are really challenged to sustain our strengths. So if we don't act decisively and now on issues like transit, jobs, employment, housing, and the development of this two-class city, one for the rich and one for the poor, Toronto will not be one of the most livable cities in the world. 
but rather an analog player in a digital world. A city of yesterday, not tomorrow. Now, the phrase analog player in a digital world, well, that's used in one of my favorite films, Ocean's 13, where George Clooney and Brad Pitt and their lovable band of thieves are ready to rob a casino, but they run into a security system they can't get by. So they call on Eddie Izzard, the technology wizard, who looks at it and says, gentlemen, you are out of your element. Mates, this is out of your scope. You are analog players in a digital world. What they had to do was think of their challenge in a whole new way. And the same with us. Simply put, what got us here ain't going to get us there. To solve our problems, we're going to have to reboot the logic around solving them. And as Steve Jobs put it, we're going to have to innovate our way out of it. And today, I want to make a case for doing just that. Now, my hope is that by the time you leave the Royal York today, you will feel the urgency to do your part in ensuring that the city you have worked so hard to build up will remain at the forefront of the world's great cities. I also hope you'll come to appreciate the growing role that the Toronto Community Foundation plays in creating, connecting, and often funding the thinking that Toronto needs to innovate our way out of this. Now, we often say that we are a, a knowledge company in the philanthropic sector. We're at the intersection of bringing the public sector and the private sector together to develop innovative solutions to wicked problems. The foundation started in Toronto in 1981. And for those who don't know, we raise endowment money and manage foundations that hundreds of families set up with us. This past year alone, we have over $275 million of assets under management, and we have 475 funds supporting more than 579 organizations to the tune of over $6 million. Now, endowments are, by definition, in it for the long term. So our perspective takes us 10, 20, 50 years ahead. But every day, our work takes us to the here and now where a positive transformation can have a huge effect 10 years from now. We use the Vital Signs Report to identify the areas of greatest need in the city, where our donor dollars can have the most impact in the most efficient way. And then we either fund existing programs or work with our partners to create new ones. We call this whole package the art of wise giving, and it's a trend we are very, very proud to champion. End of commercial, onto the report. <laughs> now, the report not only chronicles what's really happening in the city, it separates us from some of our favorite misconceptions about it. So take Parkland, for example. So it's being paved over by condos and, and roads, right? Well, not so much. Vital Signs reveals that most of us live within 500 of our city's 1,600 parks. 1,600. We are truly a city of parks. Think of our lakefront. Unswimmable? Not at all. In fact, for the third straight year, eight of the city's 11 beaches received blue flag designation, which is an international designation for cleanliness of water. How about Toronto not big on recycling? Not so much. 94% of households with a blue bin actually use it, and 97% of the green bins are actually out on the streets. No one's reading anymore? Well, the Toronto Public Library 
has been the busiest library system in North America. But in the last 10 years, its usage has risen an astounding 17.8%, with the last three years being the busiest ever. Who knew? Well, the 1.1 million library cardholders certainly did. How about funding for the arts and culture? On its way down? Not so much. It rose by about $6 million last year. And if the success of this year's Toronto International Film Festival and its $200 million contribution to the province's economy is any sign, Toronto's creative economy is moving strongly and in the right direction. What about crime in the big city? Again, the reality is not, not only as bad, but it's alarmingly good, depending, though, on who you are and where you live. The past six years in a row, the GTA has had the lowest rate of police-reported crime amongst Canada's top 33 metro areas. And as Doug Saunders of the Globe and Mail put it recently, and I quote, in terms of your odds of being murdered, mugged, or sexually assaulted, Toronto is the 52nd most dangerous city in Canada. This is all the more astounding when you think of just how many people are actually moving into Toronto's downtown. The core is thriving. Population growth has more than tripled between 2006 and 2011. And over the same time period, employment in the core grew by 14.2%. Now, Toronto is also one of the least expensive places of all large cities in North America to do business in. And a lot of this growth is spurred by the creative economy. And so it's no surprise that our film, television, and digital media sector contributed over $1.2 billion to Toronto's economy last year. But you know, Toronto has other, bigger issues. And for me, the most dangerous one is that we are well along the path of becoming a divided city. Not by race or religion, like Belfast and Johannesburg, but by income. Back in 1970, only 2% of Toronto's neighborhoods were low or very low income neighborhoods. Last year, 14%. In 1970, nearly 9% of our neighborhoods were high income. Now we're sitting at around 16%. Meanwhile, middle income neighborhoods, well, frankly, they've been hollowed out. In 1970, Toronto was proudly middle class. 58% of our neighborhoods were middle income. Last year, we're down to 29%. It's been cut in half. In fact, in 1970, 96% of all of the Scarborough neighborhoods were middle income. Now, a complete reversal. 83% of those neighborhoods are low or very low income neighborhoods. In fact, now in our city, more than 1 million Torontonians now live in low or very low income neighborhoods. That's 1 million of us. Now, as our chair, John McIntyre, and I said in Vital Signs, take a closer look and you will see worrying cracks in the foundation, alarming trend lines that are unprecedented in this city. So yes, unemployment overall in the city has fallen for the past four years. But last year, youth unemployment reached an all-time high of almost 21%. So what's going on? Well, since 2009, 28,000 youth jobs, and that's for folks between 18 and 24, have simply vaporized in the GTA. And this is after the close to 8,000 jobs lost at the end of the 08 recession. 
It's so bad that last year nationally, one in eight Canadians, young Canadians, have been looking for work for over six months. And that's double the rate what it was in 2008. And you know, for those who do get jobs, many pay poorly, they don't offer many benefits, and they don't make use of their skills and their education. But high unemployment isn't the only affliction facing our youth. Another inheritance is ill health. Today, 40% of the province's boys and almost 30% of the girls are overweight. And unless we intervene in a big and substantial way, seven in 10 of these kids will be overweight or obese when they become adults. Now, obesity isn't our only health concern. The so-called silver tsunami is as well. In 1993, 7% of Canadians were 65 or older. Ten years later, that's risen to 12%. In Toronto last year, we're up to 15%. And in 20 years, we're going to be at 20%. You put that all together, what does that mean? Almost half a million of us will be 65 or older. But this is going to place huge demands on our hospitals, our long-term care facilities, our families, our housing, and our economy. And trust me, it already is. Now, I expect many of you in this room own your own home. Well, we're the lucky ones. The average price of the home in, let's say, one of my favorite neighborhoods, the beach, rose from 310000 in 1996 to almost 800000 right now. So in a survey of over 300 international housing markets, Toronto is now ranked as severely unaffordable. And little wonder that we now have the most people on waiting lists for affordable housing than ever before in Toronto. Well, let's talk about our food banks for a second. Here we live in one of the richest cities on earth, and we had almost one million food bank users or visits last year in Toronto alone. Little wonder one in eight households in our city experienced some form of food insecurity. So let me bring some of these challenges together. One is that we do have a vanishing middle class. Another is that we do have massive and rising youth unemployment, obesity, a growing elder class, unaffordable housing, not enough food. And you'll notice I haven't even touched on public transit or city hall or our dealings with other governments or commuting time for that matter. But what I've said so far about the vital science findings and particularly how I've said it, is indicative of the very problem Toronto faces. I've simply listed some of the big issues, one following the other, sort of in order of importance. The problem with treating each problem as something that can be solved independently is that it can't. The reality is public transit is also a public health issue and a neighborhood issue as well. How? The lowest income neighborhoods tend to be poorly served by transit, so it's harder to get to the hospital or the doctor's office, let alone work or the gym, or for many, even the grocery store. What's also clear is that Toronto's problems, like its virtues, are also deeply interconnected. So more physical exercise means less obesity, means lower health care costs, means higher employment, means greater productivity. Or try this, more apprenticeship programs means lower youth unemployment, more homegrown jobs, more human capital for companies to grow, more productivity, more food for everyone. 
and a better future for all of us. I think you get the point. None of our problems exist in isolation or even in their own sector. They're all connected. And as we learn more about how they're connected, the better we'll be able to tackle them. The first thing that we have to do, though, is we have to reboot the logic, to stop thinking in a linear and unconnected way. As Einstein said, we can't solve problems by using the same kind of thinking we used when we created them. I believe the kind of thinking that will keep Toronto at the forefront of the world's most livable cities is what I'll call network thinking. In fact, the issues we face are so connected, so integrated, so complex and fast-moving. We now have neighborhoods where one in five people are living with diabetes, that only system-wide innovations are going to attack them at their core. Now, sure, neighborhood programs or even city-wide ones are very important, but they're simply no longer enough. Yes, Toronto is actually quite famous for its neighborhoods, and we love our neighborhoods dearly. But their real strength is that they're a network of neighborhoods. And it's the strength of our networks everywhere in Toronto that we really have to focus on and build up. Now, this isn't easy. We desperately need more public transit, but it has to connect and strengthen the entire region. We desperately need more housing, but more of it needs to be affordable housing for young families, for newcomers, and for seniors. So what Toronto really needs most of all is a new way of thinking about the city. Viewing our issues as a series of projects whose priorities rise and fall every year, it may actually fix the potholes and pick up the garbage. But as you just heard, our problems are far bigger than that. Now, turning City Hall into a debating society for the deaf also won't get us where we need to go. As we've seen in America over the last couple of days, turning policy battles into political fights, into political attacks, doesn't actually get anything done. But before we begin to chart how we actually get there, we need to agree on where we're actually going. Some of you may recall that last year, I said that Toronto should be a city that moves, a city that works, and a city that lives. Those weren't goals in and of themselves, but the necessary conditions to creating a prosperous city. But prosperity also shouldn't be our final goal. But like the three factors that will make Toronto prosperous, it serves the bigger goal of happiness. Now, to some of you, it sounds faintly ridiculous to want a happy city. But citizens who are happy tend to trust each other more. And when was the level of trust for our politicians ever lower than this past year? And with good trust, connections are made rather than frayed. From there, partnerships get created, networks form and take shape. And well, if Toronto is looking for a pyramid to guide it, I can't think of a better one than happiness at the top, with prosperity in the middle, grounded on each corner with a city that works, a city that moves, and a city that lives. But now, if prosperity were calculated only in economic terms, the solutions to a lot of our challenges would actually be quite easy to find. Truth is, it isn't, because social value is also crucial to our livability. But it's much harder to really calculate social value. Einstein also said, everything that counts can't be measured, and everything that can be measured 
doesn't count. But in the last five years, the linkage between economic value and social value has grown even closer. Today, it's not just the do-gooder not-profits, not-for-profits who are touting social value. Businesses large and small now understand there's a price and often a social cost to be paid for just about everything, whether you're buying cheap T-shirts, drilling for gas, or buying a cup of coffee. Determining the real cost and balancing the economic and social value, well, that will demand new kinds of relationships between the public sector, the private sector, and the philanthropic sector that gets us all working together in ways we could scarcely imagine a few years ago. In fact, that kind of new relationship, well, it's already sprouting a little bit in Toronto. And I'm going to give you a quick example from our Vital Science or our Vital Idea grants at the Toronto Community Foundation. One of our recipients was Business in a Box, scatting courts here today. Not your run-of-the-mill charitable program. They take repurposed shipping containers, put them into parking lots and empty spaces, and they run micro-businesses out of it, from bike repair to bubble tea. And none other than KPMG funded this Vital Idea grant. Now, Toronto wasn't the only place that new thinking is changing lives, neighborhoods, and cities. It's happening all over. Take Calgary, for example. Its mayor, Nahid Nenshi, came to office promising density, diversity, and a sense of discovery. This past spring, he turned Calgary into a city whose people look after each other by his personal example during the floods. But as the Calgary Sun said, and remember, this is the Calgary Sun, quote, he gave us hope. He added purpose to our spirit. He made us proud. How about Bogota? Bogota, Colombia, the drug capital of Latin America, yeah. It was a drug capital and a murder capital and a lot of other bad things as well. But we all miss the happy ending. Bogota's civic leadership took back their city over the past 10 years. They've turned it into a thriving metropolis. Violence is way down. Tourism is way up. The arts are thriving. I encourage you, go check it out for yourself. But the point I'm trying to make is, what do a highly functional city like Calgary and a once highly dysfunctional city like Bogota, what do they have in common? Strong political leadership and a singular vision. And Toronto, frankly, has neither. And there's no way we're going to address the big, gnarly issues detailed in this year's Vital Signs until we find that leadership and that vision. Greatless greatness, let alone getting byness, doesn't just happen. It's the result of deliberate, intentional, and cohesive action. More than ever today, Toronto needs all three. Now, last month, McKinsey and Company issued a report on how to make cities great. They claim that leaders who do it right do three things really well. They achieve smart growth. They do more with less. And they win support for change. Now, if those three qualities sound distant or unfamiliar to you, it's a sign of just how little they're practiced by our current civic leaders. This has to change. If the very deep problems around employment, housing, health, mobility, a two-class city are to be turned around, yes, we can make marginal progress, but we can't solve the big problems in any meaningful way unless we change how we think about them in an equally big way. 
So let's go back for a few moments, moments and look at some of the problems I described earlier in a slightly new light. I'll call them the five things, and they're all in the Vital Signs Report. Five things Toronto must do to ensure its world-caliber livability actually lasts. And in each of these five areas, we're going to have to measure success, both economically and socially. First, first of these is connectivity. Neighbourhoods do not thrive in isolation. They're connected to each other. Many would argue it's the connection what actually makes them thrive. So our transit system, both public and private, has to be efficient in getting us to and from work without delay, but that system also has to connect our communities so that it's easy to get to that local park or one of our 99 libraries or simply a grocery store or maybe a doctor. The second necessity is an affordable housing strategy. Developers build more condos than low-cost housing because they can make more money doing that. But today, we have way too many condos and way too little affordable housing. It's time to get governments and developers to align their strategies, and particularly their rewards, so that we have enough of the right housing for everyone and begin to solve some of the systemic hollowing out of our neighborhoods. Number three, we need more public space. Didn't I just say that we had 1,600 parks in this city? But most of them are tiny, suitable for the nothing more active than really sitting. Other cities like New York, London, Melbourne, they have a fundamentally different relationships with their public space and their parks because they're people-centric. Ours are about space, not people. Where are the folks playing outdoor ping pong, early morning tai chi, or even folks getting together outdoors for a pint after work? We can do a lot better in this beautiful city. Now, the fourth necessity is, frankly, to put a dent in our youth unemployment. One in five people in this city who are able to work can't find a job. But in order to forestall creating a lost generation, we don't need another strategy, folks. We need an intervention. And in the room has to be the province, the city, employers, and the young people to help them all. Germany has the lowest youth unemployment rate in the world. It's between 7 and 8%, mainly because they have a fully integrated apprentice program that's vastly different from what we have in North America. There, the government, industry associations, and companies all work together to make sure youth, youth receive rigorous training, comprehensive training, with a job at the end. You do the training, you get a job. Can we do something like that here? Absolutely, we can. Yes, it takes political will and an openness to change and a sense of trust. And this brings me now to my fifth and final initiative to ensure that our city remains as livable 10 years from now as it is today. That is, we need to build or rebuild the Toronto brand. Now, our problems aren't going to all get solved with an ad campaign. But if we're serious about attracting the best and the brightest from all over the world, and remember, we are uniquely qualified to do just that, the world has to know what we stand for. Austin, Texas started a small film and music festival called South by Southwest. It's held each March, and now it's simply the hottest thing in the U.S. I talked about Calgary. Remember when it was Cowtown? Well, not anymore. 
It spends more per capita on arts and culture than Toronto does. In fact, Calgary spends more than any other Canadian city on arts and culture. So much for Cowtown. And while we're deflating myths, anyone here from Newfoundland? Well, if there was, you know what I'd say to them? <laughs> I bet you're tired of all those Newfie jokes. It's so great to see that province urging us city slickers to visit for a little dose of authenticity. Now, that's what I call rebranding. All of these centers, Austin, Calgary, Newfoundland, and many more beg the question, what does Toronto stand for? What single memorable thing? But in the end, all of these initiatives, more connectivity, more affordable housing, more public space, yes, less youth unemployment, a more compelling brand, they all beg a different question. Who's going to kickstart all of this? Who's going to lift them into a different context of all being parts of a bigger network of solutions to bigger problems? Well, I can tell you who's not. In fact, where Toronto needs to be strongest, frankly, it's the weakest. Many people have said that we have cringe-worthy leadership in our city. My issue with that leadership is not what you think. It's the complete unwillingness to take a risk. Every one of the initiatives that I've just mentioned requires that someone take a big risk in order to make it happen. At every political level, real leadership demands taking real risks. And if we're going to solve the big problems and not just wage total war over the small ones, we can't be afraid to tackle them head on. Let our urgency conquer our fear, because we must be fearless. And we'll do far better if we change now when we have the luxury of choice rather than wait 10 years from now when we have no choice at all. But the biggest risk of all that we need to take involves taking your right hand and extending it in front of you. We need to start trusting each other again. We see what happens when trust between friends and allies break down. We see it every day on CNN. Healing the trust deficit takes fixing the most important deficit of all. Now, we can only work together on these big problems if we trust each other more. And really, our problems are the envy of many other cities around the world. So we need to take a step back. Then we need to take a big step forward. Because 380 days from today is the next civic election. Our current mayor won the chain of office in an election where only half of the eligible voters even bothered to show up at the polls. The mayor won because he was clear on where he stood and because he placed himself firmly in the camp of the people. But whether you're a member of the mayor's nation or not, our problems are too big, too damaging to ignore by doing nothing or by hoping that the kind of leadership we need will shazam show up at the polls in October of 2014. That form of magical thinking we cannot afford to indulge in twice. So I say keep calm and get ready to vote. Lily Tomlin had something interesting to say about that. She said, I often wondered why somebody doesn't do something about that. Then I realized I was somebody. There are fewer places in this city that have more people who are somebodies than right here and right now. And I'm here to tell you that it's time for all of us to act like a somebody. Every single one of us, at some time in our life and our work, has been engaged with politics and community activism of some sort. 
but you may have given up an indifference or disgust. Well, I'm here to tell you to get engaged again. I said earlier that Toronto has to start engaging in network thinking big time. Where does it start? Well, we all have a network. At its core is our family and our close friends and our colleagues. Our networks grow from there. Everyone in this room can influence 10 people, many of you hundreds. And the fact that I'm asking you to create, nurture, and deliver your own networks in order to create the new kind of network thinking to solve the wickedly complex problems that Toronto's facing, well, that's no fluke. Because it's time for us to kickstart both our networks and our thinking, to preserve one of the world's most livable, resilient, and happy cities. It's time to get to work for each other. It's time to get engaged with each other. It's time to get connected through each other. Ladies and gentlemen, it's simply time. Thank you for your time today. Good afternoon. My name is Gillian Smith, and I'm a director of the Canadian Club of Toronto. On behalf of the club, I wish to thank you, Mr. Bardwash, for yet another insightful report on the quality of life of one of the world's most dynamic cities. It's clear why Toronto Life magazine named you among the 50 most influential people in the city. Year in and year out, Vital Signs provides compelling evidence of the strengths of the city we love and call home. It also delivers some sobering statistics that give us pause. But as president and CEO of the Toronto Community Foundation, you ask us to do more than pause. You ask us to engage, to act, to make a difference, and to be somebody. And you do so by example. Whether it is the many boards and committees on which you have served, the innovative collaborative efforts your organization supports, or the many groups and organizations that have benefited from your foundation. Mr. Bardwaj, you do us proud. Thanks again for joining us this afternoon. Thanks, Jillian. Uh, I'd like to echo Jillian's message. When I, when I likened the report earlier to an annual physical, it occurred to me that I procrastinate on my physical every single year. But thanks to your punctual release of the report every year, Rahul, the city can't do that. So thank you, and thank you for being here today. Uh, I would also once again like to express our special thanks to today's event sponsors, BMO Harris Private Banking. This concludes our television programming, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We are grateful to Rogers TV and to 680 News for their continuing promotion of Canadian club events. To learn more about the club and our events, please visit our website at www.canadianclub.org. Thank you for all of you for being here today. This meeting is now adjourned. <laughs>